Good morning, Bridgeway. Hey, it is great to see you. If we haven't met, my name is Brian Kiley. I am the singles pastor here and so glad to have you with us today. Really excited to get into God's word with you. We are in part 62 of our Being Jesus series and today we're going to be primarily in the book of Luke. But before we get there, and we'll be in Matthew as well, before we get there, I want to show you a verse out of the book of James. But before I show you this verse, I just want to warn you, this verse is very controversial. In fact, I don't even know that controversial is a strong enough word to describe it. It is downright offensive. I mean, we could even, we could even call this verse un-American. I mean, a lot, there are going to be a lot of us, you're going to see this verse. Some of us who are even here, we're, we're saying, man, I love Jesus. Yes, I do. I love Jesus. How about you? We're going to read this verse and go, ooh, boy, gosh, God, I don't know. I don't know about that. Are you ready to see it? All right. This is from James, the half-brother of Jesus. James chapter 1, verse 17. Here's what he says. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. Crazy, right? It's a bit of a letdown for you. Well, hang on. Just give, 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 me, give, me, give me a second. See, that, that, that's a verse that on the surface, that seems very warm and fuzzy, doesn't it? But we don't have to think about it that long before, if we're honest, I think a lot of us would say, whoa, wait a second. Let me just, let's get out the Sharpie, the eraser. Let's just change a few words. Here's how that verse should read. Every good gift and every perfect gift comes from our own hard work. And we deserve what we have because, darn it, we've worked for it. And it's all ours. When it comes to the things that we have, let's just be honest, that's kind of our perspective most of the time, isn't it? That's a very American perspective. The things that we have belong to us, and we are owners, because we deserve to be. And while it's very true that you and I may have worked hard for the things that we have, the consistent teaching of the Bible is that the gifts we've been given, the things that we have, are gifts. They're exactly that. They're gifts from God, and they belong to God. And he entrusts us to manage or steward that which is ultimately his. In fact, this isn't the fill in the blank on the sheet in front of you, but if you're taking notes, you might want to write this down, that the Bible teaches we are stewards, not owners. We are stewards or managers, not owners. And come on, let's just be honest. As Americans, this bothers us, doesn't it? Because after all, we deserve the things that we have especially when it comes to our money, right? We, it's ours. We earned it and nobody else can make a claim on it because we worked for it. But let's think about that for a second. I I can look at the things that I have and I can say that, that I've worked for them and surely I have. But I've worked for them with what? With gifts that God gave me. I could have the greatest work ethic in the world, but, but without the grace of God, I'm not going to accomplish anything, and that's true for you as well. I mean, just think about it. Who gave you the intelligence that you have? That wasn't your idea. God did. Who gave you the capacity to learn technical skills? God did. Who gave you the ability to analyze markets and make wise investments? God did. Who, who, this is a good one, Who decided to have you born into a culture that values the skills and abilities and talents that you have? God did. 
I mean, listen, I don't care how brilliant you are or how hard you work, there was just not a great market for computer programmers in the jungles of South America in the 15th century. There just wasn't. God chose to have you be born into a culture and society that values the skills that you have. Or how about this? Who gave you the ability to draw breath? Which is phenomenally helpful if you're going to try to do something productive with your life. God did. So you and I might say to God, well, God, I've worked very hard this year. I surely deserve and I, I, I deserve the things that I have and it's all mine. And, and God would be well within his rights to say back to us, well, you know, that's true. I've been watching and you did work really hard and, you know, you, you, or you earned a lot or a little or whatever. So good for you. So, so here's what we'll do. This next year, you go ahead and work just as hard. But you know all that oxygen I've been so plentifully supplying for you? Well, We've had a little bit of a shortage. We have to cut back. And it's actually not going to be available this next year. I'm really sorry about that. And actually, and that brain you've got, you may have sort of figured out something was up by now, but it's actually a loner, and I'm going to need that back. But, but you keep working hard and let me know how it goes, right? I mean, come on. Sure, you've worked hard. I'm not disputing that. Sure, sure I've worked hard. But do you realize just the unbelievable orchestration that took place on the part of God to, to get you and I to the point where our hard work would have any value at all. I mean, you and I, before we're hard workers, we are recipients of unbelievable grace. And we are stewards or managers of that grace. We are managers of the good gifts that God gives us, and we're called to manage those things for his glory and for our joy. But let's just be honest. Again, we don't tend to think of it that way. <clears throat> we live like we're entitled to the good things that we have. Or that they're the fruit of simply our own efforts. And then when things go badly for us, what do we say? We say, oh God, why did this happen? But just consider for a moment. Consider just just one example. The crazy number of things that can go wrong in the human body at any given time. Right? If you've had any medical training, you can appreciate this exercise perhaps better than the rest of us. Consider all the things that that can go wrong. In light of everything that can possibly go wrong in the human body at any time... It is amazing that any of us got out of bed and are living life this morning, right? So, so perhaps a greater question to ask is not if, if, as we look at, you know, challenges we're facing and things that have gone wrong, a better question to ask is not, God, why did you let this happen? A better question is, God, for what purpose have you held me together so well, right? Or you consider, you know, consider how many metal tubes filled with people are going to fly through the air and land safely today without a hitch, despite everything that can go wrong. It's amazing. It's amazing what God, what God the things that, that God has done, that, that these things happen under the loving care of God. And, and everything we have comes from Him. Everything belongs to Him. And He gives us good gifts to manage for His glory. And it's up to us to make decisions about how we manage those gifts and we and we all have them so i just think about just gifts god has given me so okay so i have a physical body and it belongs to him right i I don't really get to decide when he takes it back but before he does in the meantime my, my my call is to steward this gift that god has given me for 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 his glory so for example if i'm living and making choices that cause me to constantly be tired and unhealthy. And I know sometimes that happens from circumstances that we can't control. But if I'm making choices that are causing me to be tired and unhealthy, that's, that's, that's poor stewardship on my part, right? Or, or I have a wife who I'm called to love sacrificially as Christ loves 
the church. Or, or I have two beautiful little tax deductions. Uh, Ma- Matthew, <laughs> Matthew, who's three, and Joey, who's one. And the Bible tells me that they are far more than that, right? They, they are gifts from God. And my call as their father is to teach them who God is, to, with God's help, model Christ-like character, to demonstrate for them the majesty and beauty and all-sufficiency of Jesus Christ, not just by the words that I use, but by the way that I live my life and the way they see me steward the resources God has given us. And God places that same call on you, by the way, if you're a parent. The mantle of leadership I've been given is a gift from God that I might use it to make much of him and not myself. And on and on we could go. And you could likely look at your own life through that same lens. Even even the pain that we have, even the scars that we are carrying, those in the midst of that pain is opportunity to steward that pain for God's glory. And the truth is our management or our lack thereof of what God has given us, has very real consequences. And what we're going to see today in the passages that we're going to study is that God wants us to manage our gifts in a way that ultimately leads to our long-term joy rather than settling for short-term happiness and excitement that will ultimately leave us miserable. I read a fascinating article. It was in all sorts of publications a few months ago. Maybe you saw it. It was about a guy named Jack. Jack is 77 years old. And to put it mildly, Jack is very unhappy. He lives in a big house all by himself. He's turned into something of a recluse. The article said that he said he's afraid and that he believes he's going to die alone. He's just just miserable. Hasn't kept very many friends. Doesn't really keep in touch with the limited family that he has. His children are worried about him. And, And what was fascinating to me is he seems fully aware of the fact that the choices and investments that he made, particularly when it comes to promiscuity and unfaithfulness, led him to the place where he is today. Jack's last name is Nicholson. Maybe you've heard of him. I mean, here's a guy who on the surface has had had the life most men can only dream of, a prolific acting career, multiple Academy Awards, every opportunity in the world, all the, you know, practically Prince's own money, you know, adored by fans around the world and across the decades. And he's miserable. And listen, I'm not interested in standing judgment over another man's life. That is, that's not my gig. But by his own words, it's safe to say he made bad investments. He invested his life in living the quote-unquote high life, moving from woman to woman, being unfaithful in his marriage, unfaithful in his family, and he's left a trail of wreckage behind him. He's managed the gifts he's been given poorly. And at the end of his life, he's left facing the consequences. And as we look at God's word today, I want us to see our Heavenly Father wants so desperately that you and I would be people that manage what God has given us in a way that leads to our joy. I want you to understand, God is not interested in taking away your joy. God is interested in leading you on the path to the fullness of joy. And we're going to see that, and we're going to see that through the passages we're going to study today, that part of this path that leads to joy is how we invest our resources. And the fill in the blank on the sheet in front of you is this. We won't regret investing in God and others. We won't regret investing in God and others. So we're going to start in Luke chapter 16. We'll have the passages up on the screen. You can follow along in your Bible if you'd like. I'll just be honest with you. This first passage is a very confusing one. Uh, 
Uh, in fact, on the surface, it almost seems like Jesus is endorsing dishonesty, which he's not. But if we can get, get past sort of the confusing nature of the story, there are some powerful principles in here about investment. So here we go. Verse 16, uh, chapter 16, starting in verse 1. He, Jesus, also said to the disciples, There was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, What is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. So, just set the stage real quick. We've got a rich man, and the rich man has a manager. This manager has been given authority by the rich man to make investments and manage the wealth that this rich man has. He's basically his personal chief financial officer. But the problem is, he's really bad at his job. He's like aggressively and probably intentionally bad at his job. We learned that he's wasting his boss's possessions. Bottom line, this is not the guy that you want in charge of your estate. So the rich man catches him and he fires him. And this, understandably, creates a little bit of stress in the life of the manager, which we'll see starting in verse 3. And the manager said to himself, What shall I do since my master is taking the management away from me? I am not strong enough to dig, and I am ashamed to beg. I have decided what to do so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So a couple things. First of all, he's guilty and he knows it. He doesn't try to argue his case. He doesn't try to make an excuse. He's like, well, I got caught. I'm fired. And then he starts to panic. He knows that getting fired will give him a terrible reputation. So he's not going to be able to find find work in, uh, in his field. So he's trying to think, what else can I do? He says, well, I can dig, but I'm scrawny and the shovel's bigger than me. So that's not going to work. I can beg, but I'm just not willing to do that. So then he hatches a plan. He hatches a plan so that people will receive him into their houses. And that is a Greek figure of speech, meaning they will give me a job. So he says, I'm going to go butter these people up. So that once I'm fired in about an hour, I'll have a job. So here's what happens. Verse 5. So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, How much do you owe my master? He said, A hundred measures of oil. He said to him, Take your bill and sit down quickly and write fifty. Then he said to another, How much do you owe? He said, A hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, Take your bill and write eighty. Now, I don't know about you, but most of my, the commerce that I'm involved in does not involve oil and wheat. So just to give you an idea of how much money we're talking about here, this is about a year's salary for each, per, each individual that he's knocking off the debt. So the debtors, thinking the manager is still legit, they're fired up, right? First of all, they found their new best friend. This manager is hooking them up. And then now they think, boy, that master, he sure is a great guy. And the manager now has connections that he can use in about an hour once he's out of the job. But we know the rich man is eventually going to find out about this, and we can only assume he's going to be very upset. Verse 8. The master, who has just been cheated out of a massive amount of money, commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. What? For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. What's that all about? I have no idea. Let's close in prayer. Uh, no, just kidding. <laughs> the master commends him for his shrewdness. See, it's like the sort of situation where, where if, if, if somebody pulls an elaborate prank on you, and before you can even get mad, 
you sort of have to respect it. You're like, well played, you terrible, terrible individual, right? Like the, the master is basically admitting you're an evil genius. You've just cost me about a hundred grand, but you're an evil genius. And the master at this point, he can't really do anything about it because by now word is spread around town that, the, the, that there's a, been a reduction in, the, in, in these debts. And if he goes back and tries to collect the whole debt, then there's going to be just there's going to be upheaval. His reputation will be tarnished beyond repair. And then Jesus tells his disciples, here is someone, this is a guy, this, this dishonest guy, living in a secular world, in a secular framework, and he is wiser in using the resources he, have at, he has at his disposal than the sons of light, those that would have an eternal kingdom perspective. And he's saying, this should not be so. So now, Jesus and the manager, and keep in mind, this is not a real story. Jesus made it up. So the manager is a, is a character invented by Jesus. But neither Jesus nor the manager are endorsing this individual's dishonesty. Rather, they are commending him for his ability to use the resources that he has to seek out future security. So, what's the point of the parable? We find it in verse 9. He says... And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. But even that's kind of confusing, isn't it? <laughs> it's like, what is he saying? Is, he, is, is, is Jesus saying, just bribe people so they'll be your friends? Is he saying, just use your money, go find some people, give them an allowance, and they'll be your friend for life? <laughs> no, that, that's not what he's saying. He's saying to you and I, invest your resources in that which will really last. See, the manager sacrificed short-term financial gain for that which in the long term was much more valuable, namely friendships. So Jesus says to us, use unrighteous wealth. And just to clarify, that word unrighteous could also be translated untrue. When Jesus says unrighteous wealth, he's not saying, go out and do a bunch of shady stuff to make money and use that money in this way. No, he's not saying that. In the scriptures, there's a difference between untrue wealth and true wealth. Untrue wealth is the wealth of this world that is eventually gone. True wealth is eternal riches, that which lasts forever. Jesus says, use your untrue wealth and invest it in others. Use your untrue wealth to make friends for yourself because you'll never regret investing in God and others. He's saying, live with a generous spirit. Live with a, a spirit that is anxious to use the resources at your disposal to invest in others and to invest in God's kingdom because that is an investment that will last. There is no material thing, no earthly investment that we can make that is going to last forever. And I want to point out that Jesus doesn't say in verse 9, in the unlikely event that your unrighteous wealth fails you, here's what you should do. He says, no, 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 when it fails you. We need to just realize no matter how much we've got in the bank, a day is coming when our untrue wealth is going to fail us. And it can fail us in a number of ways. I'll give you three briefly. Number one, we can lose it. We can spend it recklessly. The stock market could take a dive. We could lose our jobs. Any number of things could happen. And, whoop, I used to have this big pile of money. Now I don't. It's gone. Number two, we can die. Sorry. <laughs> Wealth is of phenomenally limited value to a dead person. It's just, it just can't do much with it. Number three, we'll get plenty of it. 
and it will leave us feeling empty. We'll max out on the various pleasures of life, and like the author of Ecclesiastes, we'll find it has done little to satisfy the deepest longings of our hearts. It'll leave us only and always wanting more. And, And I believe one of the great dangers of the wealth in our society, and I know we're not rich, we all just know somebody who is, right? Whoever has more money than us, they're rich. That's, of course, not true. The reality is, on a global scale, all of us in this room are rich. And the danger of the wealth that we have been entrusted with is that we are buying ourselves isolation. See, we have enough money that we don't need each other. We don't have to rely on each other. So we settle for Facebook posts instead of relationships and community. Several years ago, I was working at a church in San Diego, and one of my buddies, who was a screenwriting major in college, wrote a script for a movie about teen suicide. And and the movie ended up getting picked up, and it was made, and it was distributed in theaters around the country, and it was really cool. And so my buddy ends up getting interviewed on all these different, primarily Christian media outlets. And I remember watching an interview that he did with some Canadian Christian TV channel. And I'll never forget this. The, The interviewer looks at my buddy, and he says, listen... I have spent nearly my whole life as a missionary. I I have spent decades in in, in sub-Saharan Africa as a missionary. I have been in and seen kids in the absolute worst environments you can imagine. No, no, uh, No parents, just ravaged by disease, abject poverty, bugs and stuff everywhere, no sanitation, hiking miles for water. Just, it absolutely breaks your heart, the misery that I've seen. And he says, I've never once, in all my years of being over there, heard of an instance of teen depression depression or teen suicide. And yet I come back here to the United States and Canada, where we have everything. And it is an emergency. It is an epidemic. Why is that? That's a heck of a question, isn't it? And I thought my buddy's answer was brilliant. There's a number of of causes, absolutely. but, But he said this. He says, I think one of the primary causes is isolation. And he proceeded to quote just some staggering statistics about the amount of time that an average teenager spends staring at a screen. And here's how this applies to all of us, regardless of our age. Because many of us, we feel this tension. We don't think of it this way, but we've got enough money to isolate ourselves. And we are isolating ourselves. And it's making us miserable. Untrue wealth is failing us. So in light of this, Jesus says, use your money to build relationships. Use your money to build the kingdom. Use your wealth and your resources to invest in that which will last eternally. Now, you and I, I I could go around the room, ask every single one of you, hey, do you think it's a good idea to invest your resources in God and others? Almost none of us would say, nah, that sounds pretty stupid to me. Like, we all agree intellectually that that's a good idea. It's hard to argue with the logic there. But the truth is, a strictly logical argument is not going to inspire in us the sort of radical generosity that Jesus calls us to. We need something that's truly going to move our hearts. And I love that that is what Jesus gives us in Luke chapter 16, verse 9. Because I don't know what you imagine when you think about heaven, but the picture that Jesus paints in this particular story, it's not mansions and streets paved with gold and and material stuff and whatever. That's not the way he paints it in this passage. He describes heaven as a place of friends. He describes heaven as a place of relationships. He says, make friends who will receive you into eternal dwellings. And whether we readily admit it or not, we all know that's true wealth. That's true security. 
Because see, so many of us, we love our wealth and our stuff because we say it makes us feel secure and significant. But you don't need me to tell you that riches plus isolation is a recipe for crippling insecurity. And if you're that guy or gal who always has to have the biggest or the newest or the upgraded or da-da-da, look at my new thing, blah-blah-blah-blah-blah, you know there's no joy in that. You know there's no peace in that. You, you know there's nothing but insecurity. It's, it's, the, it's the constant longing for the next thing. There's no security in those things. Security, whether you're young, old, rich, poor, married, single, does not matter. Security is love. Security is relationships. Security is friendships with people that you love and who love you. So Jesus is saying, use your money, use your time, use your home, use whatever else God has entrusted to you, use those resources and invest in those around you. Be generous towards those around you. Your material standard of living will take a little bit of a hit if you do that. There's there's no getting around that. But your true standard of living will skyrocket. And listen, when you and I invest our money for the good of others, particularly when you and I invest our money and our time and our resources in a way that helps others find faith, that makes us friends for eternity. I mean, very, very few of us look back on the person that initially told us about Jesus and initially helped us find faith and say, gosh, I sure wish they hadn't have done that. Right? That's a friend for eternity, whether they're in our lives currently or not. Use your worldly wealth in light of the fact that what lasts forever is God and people. Use your money to build relationships that will last beyond the grave. This isn't bribery. This isn't materialism. This isn't using people. This is radical generosity, which, by the way, has a lot more to do with how much love is in your heart than it does to do with how much money you have in your bank account. I'll say more about that in a second. Jesus continues, verse 10. One who is faithful in very little, is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? One who is faithful in little is faithful in much. In the strictly earthly sense, this is true. If you are unwise and stingy, and selfish in the way you're managing your money now and you make $30,000 a year, do not kid yourself into thinking you will be wise and generous and intelligent and smart about your money when you make $300,000 a year. That is a complete and total lie. If you're stingy now, you'll be stingy later because generosity is not a financial issue. It's a heart issue. And in the eternal sense, which is far more important in my view, in the eternal sense, the point of these verses is even more important. Because Jesus is saying that the, the way we manage our earthly possessions is quite literally a test run for eternity. That God will use the way that we value and steward that which is fleeting and that which is temporary to determine our trustworthiness for handling true riches, that which God might give us in eternity. So the question we have to answer is, are we being faithful with the money and the resources God has entrusted us with? Do we use it as a means of demonstrating the all-surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus our Lord? And do we leverage that money and that influence and those resources for his glory? Or do we use our wealth in a way that shows that we value God or value things over God and people? And I just want to caution you. Do not evaluate yourself based on how you feel. 
Evaluate yourself based on what you do. Because so many of us, we say, oh, my heart goes out to all these causes, and oh, I love what the church is doing, and oh, I want to support this cause. My heart goes out to them, so I have a generous heart. No, you have a lying heart that is telling you you are generous when you're doing nothing. You evaluate your generosity by what you're doing, not what you feel. If then you've been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will, who will entrust to you true riches? That's a, that's a sobering question right there. And I want to be clear, this is not a give to the church message. We've already taken our offering today. Are we tracking with that? This is, this is about investing our resources holistically in a way that will bring about God's glory and our joy. This is about turning off the fiction that you and I are fed every day by our culture that tells us something along the lines of salvation is available through accumulation. It is a fiction. And this is about instead embracing a path that is radically generous and leads to radical joy. So before we move on to the next passage, where do we find the power to actually live this out? I heard a preacher say recently, we don't need to be told what to do. We need the power to live it. Most of what I've said today, if you're a church person, probably not new information. So how do we actually do it? Second Corinthians chapter eight, you don't need to turn there, but I, but I love, I love that chapter. Paul is writing to the church in Corinth and in this chapter, he's encouraging them to be generous. He's urging them to give generously to aid some Christians who are in hard times. And I love what he says in chapter eight, verse nine. He says, don't give because I have, I'm commanding you. Don't just give out of strict obedience. He says this, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. That though he was rich, yet for your sake, your sake, he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. See, see, we've just learned about an unjust, unrighteous steward. Jesus is the true steward, who invested all of his resources, who invested everything he has, the Bible says, to make us his friends, even while we were his enemies. He left his home in heaven. He invested every resource at his disposal, including his very life, to make a way for us to have eternal friendship with him despite the fact that our sin has separated us from him. That is radical generosity that God has shown us. Do you understand, church, that God has been generous with you? And it's when we understand and we receive that generosity that it changes our hearts and turns us into radically generous people. We, we need to experience God's generosity and that will make us generous. So let's turn now to Luke chapter 19, starting in verse 11. And what we're going to do is we're going to combine the story from Luke 19 and Matthew 25. And it's a little bit tricky because these stories are similar enough that I don't know that it makes a whole lot of sense to read both of them, especially because it's a somewhat lengthy story. But they're, and, and, and the point is, is pretty much the same. But there are enough differences in the story that it's pretty clear that this isn't just two guys' account of the same story. These are two different stories. So we're going to read Luke, and I'll sort of chime in with, with some of what Matthew said along the way. This is Luke chapter 19, starting in verse 11. As they, the disciples, heard these things, he, Jesus, proceeded to tell a parable, because he was near to Jerusalem, and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. Jesus is approaching Jerusalem. There's massive expectation that when he gets to Jerusalem, he is going to establish an earthly kingdom of God in Jerusalem. That's the expectation. He said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. In Matthew, it's just a guy, a rich guy going on a journey. Calling ten, ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas and said to them, 
engage in business until I come. A mina is about three months wages. For, for, an, for an average worker. Uh, in Matthew, he gives the servants talents. A talent is 20 years wages. So that is a lot more money than a mina, but a mina is still a lot of money. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. Now, I want to pause here and a couple things. So we've got a nobleman going on, who's some sort of kingly figure, going on a journey to, to, to Rome or, or the equivalent of Rome in the story to ask to be made ruler over a particular area. Now, if, let's suppose that Jesus were living in our day and he was here and he started to tell us a story or a parable and he started the story by saying, imagine that there was a presidential election and once the election was done and everyone had casted their votes, it was still unclear as to who won and it took a very long time to figure it out. If he were to say that, we would all kind of, oh, okay, yeah, Jesus, I, I, I'm tracking with you. I know what you're talking about. Why? Because that very thing occurred in our culture 15 years ago. We can relate to that. In the same way, in 4 BC, a man named Archelaus, the son of Herod the Great, went to Rome to, to ask to be made king or ruler over Judea. And at the time, just like the man in the story, he actually had a contingent of his own people, of his own, of people that lived in that area that were, that were uh, hotly opposed to him, that didn't want anything to do with him. And what happened was he got to Rome, he asked to be made king, and his request was actually denied and he was banished. Bummer, dude. So what happened was somebody else was made king and the backers of Archelaus, they had, they suffered all sorts of problems because when a new guy is ruling, he's not going to be real keen on the people that, the people that supported the old guy. Hang on to that for a second and we're going to come back to it. Jesus is saying, what Jesus is saying, and we need to understand, by the way, the nobleman in this story represents Jesus and, and, and represents Jesus who is going to go away this is for those who thought the kingdom of God was going to come immediately. He is going to go away, and then he is going to come back to receive his kingdom in the new heavens and the new earth. And we also need to understand, and we can miss this because of sort of the cultural distance between us and the story. The nobleman, when he is giving this money to, and saying, I want you to conduct business while I'm away, this is not about making money. This is about them publicly declaring that their allegiance to him while he is away, in a culture that will be largely hostile to him. Are you seeing the connection to our day? So Jesus is saying that there are some on the earth who will say, we don't want this man to reign over us. And I think we can all agree that that is a pretty accurate statement, picture of our world today. There are many who would look at Jesus and they would say, we do not want his authority, we want nothing to do with him, we don't want this man to reign over us. But I'm going to say something right now, and this might earn me a few emails, and that's fine. Kylie at bridgewaychristian.org. Subject line, I don't like you. I'm practically writing it for you. It's really easy for us to sit here and say, yeah, those people out there, they're so wicked, they're so ungodly, it's so awful what they're saying and doing about Jesus, it's so terrible how far our culture has gone away from God. And it's not hard to find some talking head in the media who wants to rage about society's lack of Christian values. Not hard to do. But listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, starting in verse 12. For what do I have to do with judging outsiders? 
Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges the outside. Do you realize whose job it is to judge those outside the church? Not yours, not mine, God's. And listen, I am not big on shame, but shame on us if we are looking at a lost and broken and dying world and expecting them to act like people who have been transformed by God's spirit when they haven't. It doesn't make any sense. Our job is not to condemn. Our job is to show grace. Our job is not to judge. Our job is to overcome evil by doing good. And listen, this world is not going to be changed by us trying to force our morality on those who are far from God. The world is going to be changed by a generation of Christ followers with the courage and conviction to show the limitless love and compassion of Jesus regardless of the cost. Because listen to me, that world does not first and foremost need our morality. The world needs Jesus. So let me tell you what is a far greater concern to me than the quote-unquote disobedience. Well, it is disobedience. Disobedience of those outside the church. I'll tell you, this is true about me, and you can just kind of try this on and decide if it's true about you. If I take a good long look at my own heart, if I'm really honest, I have to say there are parts of my heart that would say, I don't want this man to reign over me. Frankly, there are, there, are, there are times when I don't particularly want to steward the gifts God has given me in the way he's called me to in, in a way that I know will lead to my joy. I want to choose the path of pettiness and silliness. I want to do things my own way. I want to indulge in the quote-unquote small sins. You know the kind. They're not the kind that cause a scandal. All they do is rot your heart. See, that's the sort of thing that needs our attention. Church, we've got to quit worrying about trying to get outsiders to act like insiders. We've got to worry about the fact that, come on, so many of us that are insiders are acting like outsiders. And in fact, let's just take this one step further. What if, instead of worrying about all the sin and all the bad guys, whoever they are in your mind out there, what if for the next year, every single one of us who is a Christ follower committed to the following? If you're not a Christ follower, you can decide what you want to do with this. This isn't for you. You just listen in. But if you're a Christ follower, what if every single one of us did this? What if every single one of us said, we're done looking at porn? It's, we're done. I understand it's an addiction. I understand it's incredibly hard, but we're doing whatever it takes. We'll, we'll take a class. We'll get some accountability. We'll, we'll have our mom be our accountability partner. We don't even care. We'll, 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 we'll disconnect from the internet. We'll, we'll go to the library to use the internet. Whatever it takes, we are going to value our purity over our sin, whatever it takes. What if we said we're, we're done with any sort of illegal substance, or we're done with using legal substances in a way that hurts us or hurts others? The, the scriptures say, uh, do not be drunk with wine because it hurts us and it hurts other people. We're just done with it. Forget about judging them. We're just done. We're not allowing ourselves to be controlled by those things. What if instead of worrying about the sexual ethics out there, we said, okay, God, you say that your will for us is that we would be holy and that we would abstain from sexual immorality. We're done with premarital sex in the church. You say that sex is a gift for marriage. We're, we're done. We're not going to mess around with this again. We'll get whatever accountability it needs. Or how about this? We're done with adultery. 
We're absolutely done with people being unfaithful to their spouses. And listen, I know what some of you are thinking. Like, oh, come on. It's not really adultery, uh, at least not yet, because we're just friends and it's just a little thing. Listen, if, if, if you have some sort of emotional relationship with somebody and you're, who's the, of the opposite sex and your spouse doesn't know about it, spoiler, spoiler alert, I know how that movie ends and it's not happily ever after. Knock it off. What if, what if we quit worrying about how they're trying to define, hold on, hold on, you, you're going to get mad at me, so just just, just, what if, what if we quit worrying so much about how they're trying to define marriage out there and we focused on honoring our marriages in here? And what if we said, you know what? We are done with hateful, mean-spirited, sarcastic political speech. We're done. No matter our... See, I told you you'd get mad. No matter what it is, we are done with it. Because guess what? God calls us to love our enemies. God calls us to pray for those who persecute us. God calls us to overcome evil with good and to turn the other cheek. And frankly, it is embarrassing how Christians are bringing reproach upon the name of Jesus by denigrating those who believe different things politically. And Christians do this on both sides. We cannot do that. We cannot, cannot do that. And if I was to make a list in my mind of, say, the top 30 people I know who I would say are hateful in the expression of their political views, every single one of them is a Christian. Every single one. And I know a lot of non-Christians. Stop it. You want to advocate for your political cause? Do it. Paint a beautiful picture of, of, of the future and what it can be like if your way wins. Don't stop tarnishing those who, let's remember, they might believe differently than you, but they are image bearers of God. And, and, and start treating them in a way that if they were to see the things that you say, they would say, you know what, that person believes different things than I do, but I sure know that they love me. What if we did that? What if every Christian, what if every Christian said, you know what, I'm giving away 10% of my, my income. Whatever, whatever it takes, whatever I have to sacrifice, I'm giving away at least 10% of my income to support the work of the kingdom of God in the world. The average Christian household today gives 2.5%. Church, we can do better. Give it here, give it somewhere, invest it in meeting urgent physical and spiritual needs. What if every parent said, I am done outsourcing the spiritual development of my children. I am going to take responsibility to be a pastor to my kids, and I am going to teach them about God. I'm going to show them grace. I'm going to teach them who Jesus is. Come on, church, if we did those things just for a year after a year you can go back to whatever we do those things for a year don't you think it would change things if, if we did those things here in the church in an environment of grace and unconditional acceptance and love don't you think it would make a difference man you want to see the world change for the glory of god it does not start with condemning those who are out there it doesn't it starts with us living what we believe and, and then again where do we find the power to live this way? Because we don't need to be told. We've been told a hundred times. Where do we find the power? Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, since we are a part of this global movement of God, let us also lay aside every weight and sin that clings so closely and run with endurance the race set out before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. We look to Jesus. We experience his great love. Love. We let him transform our hearts and, and, and that changes us into people who desire nothing more than joyful obedience. I'm getting all fired up, but we got to keep going and get you out of here on time. Verse 15, here we go. Then he returned, having received the kingdom. He ordered these servants to whom he had given the, mo- who, to whom he had given the money to be called to him that he might know what they had gained by doing business. 
So the nobleman returns, and thank goodness, he made it. He, he got his kingdom, and he's back. And, and a better translation of those last couple of words, would, which is actually just one word in Greek, would be that he's not looking for how much has been gained. He wants to know how much business has been done. Because if they've done a lot of business, it shows they've gotten themselves out there. They have publicly associated themselves with him. But if they've done very little, it shows, it shows that they are ashamed. So I want us to see what happens. I'm going to read the rest of the story. I'm going to go back and, and, and make a few observations before we wrap up. So he says this. The first came to him saying, Lord, your mina has made ten minas more. And he said to him, well done, good servant. Because you have been faithful in a very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. Enter into the joy of your master. And the second came saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, and you are to be over five cities. Enter into the joy of your master. Then another came saying, Lord, here is your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit. You reap what you did not sow. He said to them, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked and slothful servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank and at my coming I might have collected it with interest? And he said to those who stood by, take the mina from him and give it to the one who has ten minas. And they said to him, Lord, he has ten minas. I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. But as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. Yikes, we'll come back to that. A couple of observations. First, the first servant, or the second servant for that matter, quite easily could have said, Hey master, uh, good to see you. We took that mina you gave us, and, and I opened a bakery. And we used only fresh organic ingredients, and we did some great market research and had an aggressive social media campaign, and we offered free Wi-Fi. Apparently, that's a thing now. And we, we, we hired the best staff we could, and ta-da, a thousand percent return on your investment. Look at the product of all of our hard work. Instead, he says, your mina has made ten minas more. Sure, they worked hard and they were faithful, but they know that it was the master's entrustment in them that produced fruit. Jesus tells us in John chapter 15 that he is the vine and we are the branches. And it's by abiding in him that we will bear fruit. It is by, play, by receiving the entrustment that God has given to us and then being faithful with that entrustment that we will be fruitful. Next, the reward for faithfulness of the, the faithfulness of the first two servants, it's not retirement. It's greater leadership and responsibility. Because listen, you and I, we may someday retire from paid employment. Maybe you already have. But retirement from joyful service to the kingdom of God, that's called death. Okay? That's when we retire from being a part of God's kingdom. And listen, I realize that, I, that I'm a youngish guy, I guess, depending on your perspective. Uh, so, so if you want to disregard what I have to say, because I'm young and I don't understand, and I don't know there's anything I can do about that. But, but listen, listen, listen. The picture that our culture gives us today of the ideal retirement is fool's gold. It is 
absolute fool's gold. Now, let me give you some context for that remark. So I live here in Lincoln, and I have parents who live in Lincoln. They live in Sun City, Lincoln. And I am a huge fan of Sun City. I go there all the time. I use their recreational facilities. I'm ready to, like, gray my hair a little more and fudge some numbers on my birth certificate to see if they'll, they'll let me buy a house in there. I'm a huge fan. And if listen, if you're in that season of life where you have some extra time and you can golf and you can play tennis and you can play bridge and take dance classes and do all that stuff, by all means, do it, enjoy it. That's fantastic. Do it for the glory of God and, and take advantage of the fact that you have the time to do that. But please, I beg of you, do not spend the last years and decades of your life believing that you have nothing to contribute to the kingdom. And please do not let the last great work of your one and only precious life that God has given you be on the golf course, not against golf. You like golf, play, goodness sakes, play golf and love it. But don't let your last great work be on the golf course. Don't let your last great work be in some trivial recreational pursuit. We desperately, desperately need you to be at work in the kingdom. Please don't waste these years. People my age need you. People younger than me need you. Heck, people older than me need you. Next. Look at the <laughs> next. Look at the master's words in response to the report of the first two servants. He doesn't say, "Wow, way to go! You made a killing. Let's go celebrate." He says, "Well done, good and faithful servant," and he invites them into the joy of their master. When I was a kid, I, I was one of four kids, and my parents had this policy that sort of irritated me at the time. But I, looking back on it, I respect. Isn't that respect it? Isn't that how it always is? And where where they had they held the four of us to different standards academically based on what they believed we were capable of. So we were held to very high standards to do the absolute best we could. But because we were just wired differently, what might get praised from one of us would be disciplined in the other. And, and, and they didn't use these words, but it was basically be faithful with what you've been given. And that is essentially what the passage is telling us. Be faithful in what you have been given. Some of us, God has given minus. Some of us, we've been given talents. We're extraordinarily gifted and have extraordinary resources. Whatever God has given you, be faithful in it. You put, it. put it to good use. And see, the third servant was condemned, not on the basis of his poor performance, but on his lack of faithfulness and his refusal to be associated with his master. See, he claims to be afraid of his master, but what was more likely true is he was afraid that the master wouldn't come back. This is a very unstable political environment, and he didn't want to be associated with the master in case he ended up losing out. So then when the master does come back, he concocts this story about, oh, I'm afraid of you. I thought you were evil and terrible and awful, so I went and hid, you know, hid the money you gave me. And the master said, he sees through it immediately. He says, listen, you're a liar, basically is what he said. Because if I was really as awful as you say I am, if you really thought I was that awful... You would have put my money in the bank where I could have collected interest. See, for an observant Jew, collecting interest was illegal. But if, if I'm so awful, you would have been fine with me. With me with, I would have been fine with collecting that interest. So, so you would have done that. See, the third servant was unfaithful. And he had a distorted view of his master that was created by his own unfaithfulness. And I wonder, is it possible that some of us have a distorted view of God for the same reason? See, the judgment of the master, and this might, this might not sound like flames and pain and all that, but this is, this is real judgment right here. The judgment is basically, okay, fine, I'm going to let you continue on with your distorted, self-created view of me. 
And then the parable closes with the master stating what his enemies deserve. They deserve death. And then the story just ends and we're not told what happens. Jesus does this a lot, particularly in the book of Luke, where he sort of tells a story, but he doesn't resolve all the tension. We're left sort of wondering, well, what, is, what happened? What did the older brother do? What happened to the enemies? What, Jesus, what happened? And, and, in, and in the Middle Eastern culture, for him to say, bring my enemies before me and slaughter them, that's not actually a death sentence. And this isn't just like pastor voodoo. This is, this is truth. Is that it wasn't a death sentence. It was, it was simply a declaration of what they rightly deserve. This is what they deserve for their rebellion. The, the, the punishment is death. We don't know what actually happens. We know that the Bible tells us that the wages of sin is death. And left at that, that's very bad news. But that the verse, Romans 6.23, continues, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. We don't know how that story ends. Praise God, we know how our story ends. So here's the point. We will never regret investing in God and people. And in this story, I want to encourage you with this, especially if you're unsatisfied with your current level of effectiveness in the kingdom, that God values faithfulness over effectiveness, and God will create fruitfulness out of our faithfulness. Our levels of effectiveness are going to be different. That's up to God. But are we being faithful with what God has given us? We're stewards, not owners. And you and I have been given the incredible opportunity to steward what God has given us. What are we going to do with it? Whether we have a lot or a little, what are we going to do with it? And God is looking for our faithfulness. And, and, and I just, the story I read at the beginning about old Jack Nicholson, that story has been repeated so many times and it just, it breaks my heart and more importantly, it breaks God's heart. So I, I just, these passages are a wake up call to all of us to consider if we're being faithful with what God has entrusted to us, because what we need to understand you guys, this is not a game. This life we are living is not a game. These decisions we're making, it's not a game. We don't get to hit the reset button. This is about our life. This is about your family. This is about your legacy. This is about your eternity. So for so many of us that are treating it like it's a game, we need to wake up. I mean, for, for every unkind and unloving and unfaithful spouse in the room, gosh, wake up. For every parent who is neglecting the spiritual development of their kids, wake up. For every one of us, I know I live in the real world just like you do. For every one of us who has a thousand excuses for our lack of generosity, wake up. For every one of us that is so busy judging and condemning outsiders that we ignore the junk in our own hearts, wake up. For every one of us that is wasting our lives on just trivial nonsense, wake up up and for every one of us who God help us we've learned to play the church game but we've lost any real affection for the Lord wake up there is a road full of temporary pleasures and its end is death and misery and I am begging you, and forget, you know, forget what I think. God is begging us, see it for what it is. See that it's a trap. See that it's fool's gold. The path, the road of faithfulness, the road of staying the course, the road of loving in the face of hate, the road of loving your family well, the road of purity, the road of grace, the road of generously, outrageously generously investing the resources we've been given into God's kingdom and into God's people. It is a hard road, but it's end is life. 
So where are you investing? Because you will not regret investing in God and people. Let's pray together. God, we are, we are grateful for your word. We are grateful that it is inspired by you and it is profitable for us. God, I pray that we would be a people with hearts that have been so transformed by your love for us that we would be a people of radical generosity. I pray that we would use the gifts we've, you have entrusted, with us, entrusted to us to make friends for eternity, to invest in you and your kingdom, and to invest in others. I pray that as we have been recipients of grace, that, God, we would be far more concerned about walking in that grace and walking in the joy, the joy of obedience and holiness, and that that would be our aim rather than judging those who are different, who believe differently and who act differently. And God, I pray that the joy that comes from our lives as we walk in obedience would be contagious and that a lost and desperate world, a world that is left trying to satisfy itself on crumbs, would see the feast that you have for us at your table and that you might get the glory. God, this is not for us. It is for you. It's for your beautiful name. We pray these things. Amen. God bless you. I love you. We'll see you next time.